Welcome everyone to Walnut Hill. So good to be here with you. Wow, what a great way to start my morning and your, our morning together, right? Wow, I just love to worship the Lord. There's something so special when we gather together. Last week, Brian kicked off a sermon series, a new sermon series called 10, 10 Insights on the Kingdom. And we continue that today. Just a couple of reminders of what Brian shared with us last week. He kicked it off by, by reminding us that out of 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone, a new life has begun. What a great reminder. He challenged us to embrace change in our lives, that the Lord had new wine, new things to do in us, always has new things to do in us. And when we choose stagnancy, we don't grow. But when we choose to allow the Lord to come and do new things, that's when amazing things happen. Do you remember the story that he told about Alex Buchanan and the... uh, taking an ax to the pews. Again, we have nothing against pews, right? Nothing against pews. Pews are wonderful. Waterbury, don't worry. We love your pews. We're not going to ax them down. But it was a reminder to us, right, that we sometimes have things in our lives that get in the way of the new wine that God has in our lives. Maybe you, maybe you, you prayed about that this week and the Lord revealed something to you. I hope so. We're going to continue on on some of the stories of the kingdom And remember, this is one of the topics, maybe the topic that Jesus speaks about most in the Gospels. So it must be incredibly important to him, this concept of the kingdom, the new kingdom. I I went to Wheaton College out in in Wheaton, Illinois, and um, I played hockey at Wheaton College on our club team there. It was was so, I loved, I love hockey, still love hockey, and I loved to be able to continue to play in the college. And my junior year, I, I was a captain of the team, and we were heading out to DeKalb, Illinois, to play Northern Illinois University. Now, we had played a couple of games already in the season, and I hate to tell you that it was not a good start. Not a good start at all. But we had had, we had good uh, luck against Northern Illinois in the past, and they weren't known to be a very strong team. So we came in with a little bit of confidence, a little bit, or I should say at least a little bit of hope that something might turn around. And we got on the ice for warm-ups, and I had a habit of always taking a look down the other end to kind of eye the goalie, see if I could see any, any you know, weaknesses that we could exploit and try to score some goals, and I did that. But I was distracted quickly from my normal procedure because I saw, I saw a shadow cast across the ice. And when my eyes, you know, my brain and my eyes sort of caught up with each other, what, it, what I saw was an enormous hockey player a hulk of a man skating across the ice, casting that shadow. And I have to admit that even though, you know, I'm a, a strong, powerful man, I felt fear creep into my heart. And I knew, you know, I had to lead by example. They, they asked me to be a ca- the captain for a reason, but I was nervous. And then it got worse. Because as he turned, I saw the nameplate on, on the back of his jersey. And it said, Chelios. Doesn't mean much to you, does it? Let me explain. Because if you're from Chicagoland, it means a lot to you. One of the greatest defensemen in the history of the NHL was named Chris Chelios. He played for 26 seasons, unheard of in the game of ice hockey, from 1983 to 2010. Most of them, or many of them, with the Chicago Blackhawks. And so my, myself and my friends were saying, is this Chelios's son that we have to play against? How, is he related to him? He's certainly as big as he, as he is, as Chelios is. is he, could he possibly be as tough and as mean as Chris Chelios? These are the things going through our minds. I don't know if anyone said it, but I knew we were all thinking it. So even before the puck dropped, 
fear had taken hold of the Wheaton College hockey team. And I want to tell you, I avoided that guy like the plague out on that ice. But he was a forward and I was a defenseman. It was going to happen at some point. We were going to have to come together. And I couldn't shy away. If I did, it was over. The team, we would have had no chance. And so it, and it, but it had to have happened right in the middle of the ice. And I, I, I went with determination. I went with determination. I, I can say that for myself. And my goal was to dislodge the puck from him and hopefully make him look up at the rafters. But the opposite happened. I mean, this guy, he didn't even break a stride. He was a brick house, and he knocked me on my back. I was looking up at the, at the rafters, and I listened to the fans, because we were in their home rink, and I listened to the opposing bench cheer. And my, and my buddies groan and probably laugh a little bit, if I'm honest. I'm sure they did. That guy, in that moment, I knew was stronger than me. He was strong. He was a strong man. But how does this relate to the passage? You know, we serve someone stronger, so much stronger than any man, than any situation, than any stronghold. Our Jesus is stronger. He is victorious and he is stronger. Did you know that today? Amen. I heard some amens and I agree with you. Amen to know that we have a God like that. He's stronger than any sin in your life. He's stronger than any shame that you experience. He's stronger than any strong stronghold. He is stronger. So as I share that story, I want to just ask Mr. Chelios to forgive me. I have made him, used him in a metaphor that was not very nice. I'm sure he's a wonderful man, and I hope I don't meet him again when I'm in the Chicago land. What had happened leading up to this moment in this passage that Brianna just read for us? What had happened? Much had happened. And I want to give you a little reminder. I hope it's exciting for you to hear in just snippets all the amazing things that Jesus had been doing up until this point that we find him in Scripture. Here's the first thing. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? We talked a lot about this, that this year. His teaching was powerful, wasn't it? Remember what the people said about him? He taught with real authority quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So that's powerful, but it also would be hurtful to those teachers of religious law to hear that, wouldn't it? Man, that is not something you want to hear if you're a teacher and someone comes along and you're compared in that way. doesn't come, go over real well. But then the other thing he's doing is he is healing all over the place. Just a few of the examples. He healed the man with leprosy. He even reached out and touched a man who was untouchable and healed him that man with leprosy, the Roman officer's servant, he healed her. And in that healing, he proclaimed that Gentiles are going to be enfolded into the kingdom of God, while some Israelites are going to be pushed to the side. Imagine again how those teachers of religious law would have received that. What about the, the woman who had been suffering from bleeding for years? She reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and she is instantly healed. What about the two blind men in Matthew 9, 7, uh, 27 to 31? The man with a deformed hand. On the Sabbath, he reaches out and his hand is just like the other one. Totally healed. He's casting out evil spirits. On the other side of the lake, do you remember how the, the evil spirits were cast into the pigs and they ran off the side of the, of the cliff? Then in 9.35 of, chapter, uh, of Matthew, it says, every kind of disease 
an illness he was healing. So it just, he, he, they gave examples and then they said every kind. So he was healing wherever he went and he was doing it en masse. And, during, and then finally, he raises a girl from the dead in Matthew 9, 23 to 26, the synagogue leader's daughter raised from the dead. And all through this time, what are the Pharisees doing? They're watching and they're building a case against Jesus because Jesus still isn't measuring up to what they expect from the coming Messiah. And what is the case that they're creating? Number one, they're saying, this guy says he forgives sins. He's a blasphemer. He's a blasphemer if he'd say something like that. You remember the paralyzed man? Lowered down through the roof, he forgives his sins. And then he is working on the Sabbath. We see multiple occasions. One, the man with a hand that I mentioned, but then also even his disciples are working on the Sabbath, breaking off heads of grain in order to eat because they're hungry on the Sabbath day. So their claim against Jesus, this is how I would sum it up for you. He's a Sabbath breaker, he's a blasphemer, and he works by the power of the devil. That's what they're saying about Jesus. And now in this passage, the people are asking this question. Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? And the teachers of religious law and Pharisees could not handle that question. The messianic expectation of the day was that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to be like David. He was going to be a conquering king in the line of David. And he was going to, be, and he was going to come uh, producing the miraculous. These things were happening. So let's, let's for a moment assume that some of the Pharisees were well-meaning because I, I don't believe that they are all not meaning well, so let's assume that they were. Can you see how a well-meaning Pharisee could have thought that they were simply protecting the people from an evil influence? I think some of them thought that way, but we know for a fact that others were thinking differently. Some of them were protecting themselves from losing power. If this one rises up, perhaps I'm gonna get pushed down. I'm sure that some of them were trying to deflect uh, Jesus away so that their influence and connection to Rome wouldn't get disconnected. They didn't want to see Rome rise up against them. They wanted to have the freedom, the relative freedom that they were experiencing. Perhaps some of them were just missing the, the new wine that Jesus had to offer. Here's what they couldn't deny. And I love how this passage says it. They could not deny that Jesus was doing the miraculous. They couldn't deny it. Why? Because the people who had been affected by what Jesus had done were right there in their midst. Don't think that they were, ran off to the, to the hills and didn't participate. I mean, Jesus had done these things for them. They were following Jesus. They were right there. There's the man. There's the man who had leprosy not long ago. He's not disheveled, yelling unclean anymore. No, he's right among us totally integrated into our community. There's that woman who suffered from bleeding all those years. She's right here in our midst giving testimony to what the Lord has done. Those men who are blind, look it, they can see. Didn't you see that man who was carrying around that mat after he was healed? I was there when they lowered him through the roof and Jesus forgave his sins and healed him. Some were able to say that they were witnesses to what had gone on. And then, imagine, you're standing in a crowd and the little girl that you knew was dead in her father's house is listening to Jesus right next to you. The Pharisees couldn't deny that Jesus was doing the miraculous. He was doing the miraculous. So instead, they had to go a different direction. 
they had to try a new tactic. They had to accuse Jesus of receiving power from the enemy because supernatural power requires a supernatural source. They knew that. So where was the power coming from? If it was coming from the enemy, then the kingdom hadn't come. But if it was coming from the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom had come and Jesus was initiating it and he was the Messiah. But he didn't match up to what they were expecting. Friends, I don't want us, I don't want us, I don't want your friends and your neighbors and the people you love to miss out like the Pharisees did, to miss out on the victory and power of Jesus. They're asking, it couldn't be the Holy Spirit, could it? It couldn't be, but it was. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and the kingdom had come. I want, like, I want you, like, like I can, to be able to declare loudly with certainty, with excitement, that Jesus is victorious and his kingdom has come. And let me give you some proofs, some proofs for, for why you can do that today. Proof one, Jesus' victorious rescue. The strong man is strong, but Jesus must be stronger. What was the most precious thing to the enemy, the most precious thing that he would want to have tied up in his home he talk, in the scripture, it talks about his goods. What were his most precious goods? So precious that Jesus was willing to enter the house and subdue the enemy. What do you think? Those precious goods are you and me. We are the most precious goods of our Lord. And therefore, the enemy would want to tie us up and keep us down and not allow us to be who, we would want to be, who God would want us to be, of course, Jesus rescued you, friends. That's why he entered the stronghold. That's why he subdued the enemy, because he wanted to rescue you. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You were, still, you were locked up in the house of the enemy, and you weren't even ready to try to release yourself, but Jesus still came for you. He didn't come to rescue you because you were trying to be rescued necessarily or because you had some great worth that was worth rescuing. Look at the man in the story. He's the example to us. Here he is, demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he was brought to Jesus. He wasn't even able to bring himself to Jesus. The Pharisees should have known. They should have known. They should have been able to read scripture and see. They should have been able to see the signs of the times, but somehow they didn't. Somehow they missed it. While a demon-possessed, blind, mute man with nothing to offer, no special knowledge, no ability, he's the one who receives salvation that day. That's good news for you and me, isn't it? That is good news. So while those who have every, quote, right to experience Jesus, they don't. But those who have no right in that context, they're the ones who somehow recognize Jesus. It's the sinner who comes humbly to the Lord with nothing to offer that's welcomed in with arms wide open from Jesus. It's not the self-righteous Pharisee. That's great news. Jesus' victorious rescue was accomplished for you. For you. And his kingdom has arrived. That's the first proof. Jesus' victorious rescue. The second is this, Jesus' power over the enemy. 
That power over the enemy is by the Spirit, and if it's by the Spirit, then we can also be sure the kingdom of God has come. I want to challenge you this morning. I sometimes hear us giving a lot of credit to the devil. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. I don't know a lot about the devil, but I think I know enough. There's only one devil. He's not omnipresent. In other words, he can only be in one place at one time. He's not like the Holy Spirit who lives and rules and reigns in and through you all the time. Do you really think he has time for you? And yet we give him so much credit for the things that are going on in our lives. We blame him for so much that's happening in our lives. If you're being affected by the enemy, the likelihood of the devil, the the chief prince of darkness, being the one who's involved in you is slim to none. No, you're being affected by some little imp that that the enemy has sent your way. And friends, he has no sway in your life. None. Because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge there's an enemy, yes. I'm not standing here saying there's no enemy. There is. Scripture's clear about it. We don't We don't uh, uh, labor against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We need to know there is an enemy. It's good to understand the enemy's tactics. But then we dismiss the enemy and we exalt Jesus. That's what we've been taught by those who have a lot more experience in these areas. Listen to James 4, 7. Humble yourselves before God. That's part of our theme today. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? I think it is pretty simple. That's what we're called to do. I just don't want in my life to give the enemy a lot of credit for having any effect in my life. Do you? I hope not. Let's not give him the time of day. Let's exalt our Jesus instead. We need to understand the difference between the sin nature and attacks from the enemy. We get them mixed up all the time. Let me read a wonderful passage, just a short one, out of Galatians 5, a couple of verses. Listen to these verses. 5, 16 through 17. I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting against each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Let's go back to where I started, 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's an old sinful nature, and there's a new saved nature in Christ. They war against each other. It's just, it's what happens, and it's normal. But it's not the enemy at work. Now, the enemy can take hold of those things if we allow him to, but you have to allow him to for that to happen. The flesh is simply that sin nature, and that's the other word we use for it, the flesh, that we're born with. And when you have a child, you know that, that you see the sin nature early. It, come, it comes up. It, it, you see it. We're born with that sin nature, and we're asked to nail it to the cross and to choose to live by the Spirit day by day, moment by moment. Down the, uh, a few verses later, in verse 24 of this chapter of Galatians, The scripture will come up on the screen. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. 
Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Now, this passage gives us a bunch of examples of what the sin nature tends to do. Here's just a few. Impurity, idolatry, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, division, envy, there's a, and more and more. And then it says, and other sins like these. So there's many things that our sin nature would love to rise up and get us to move into, as opposed to living by the Spirit and following his ways. Here's an example from my own life when I was a child. My brother and my sister were just so natural with, and still are, with uh, musical instruments. My sister in particular, excellent at piano and guitar and almost anything she did, and she played trumpet as well. Excellent musician. And it seemed to me that it all came very easily to to, to these two, you know? We got a drum set in the house at some point, You understand why. You've seen Brian play drums. But my sister was the first one to try to teach us to play drums. She sat down on the drum set and very naturally was able to play, you know, something simple. Brian wanted next. He jumped on the drums. Same thing. Almost able to just repeat what my sister did. I thought, wow, this must be easy. Um, I'll just sit down and do the same thing. Didn't happen. If you put me on the drums right now, it would not be pretty. I wouldn't do it to you. It would hurt your ears. It just didn't come naturally. And I t- I'm telling you, I felt from my sister and my brother uh, that, that feeling that comes up. You ever had it? Jealousy? Envy? You, you don't like it, but you kind of want to have it. You kind of want to hold on to it. Now, I'm a kid. I didn't know that I could turn to the Holy Spirit and call on the Spirit to come and, and instead replace that with the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I didn't know. And I, I kind of stuck in that moment for a little while. And I'm sure my mom took, and dad took me aside and talked me through it. And the flip side, when the, the, um, the fruit of the Spirit comes and flows through, what can happen in those moments as you mature, now you become your brother and your sister's greatest advocate. And you cheer on their strengths and abilities and their gifts, right? That's what happens. Now, was that the enemy at work in my life? You know, as like a 12-year-old boy? No, no. It was just the sin nature rearing its ugly head. And it was a young boy learning how then to lean into the spirit and let the spirit come and rule and reign in my life and work and become an advocate for instead of feel like I had to be against or had to fight fight for my own. Does that make sense? That's important for us to know the difference. This is a great little quote that I found. It's it's from desiringgod.org. Against the flesh... The conflict is normal. The battles are winnable, and one day soon, the war will come to an end. That's, that's worth amening about. That is good news, isn't it? This is great news for us. Jesus' power over the enemy has freed you from the power of the enemy, but also from the sin nature, because the very spirit who is in Jesus is living in you. Did you know that? The very spirit who enabled Jesus to do what he did, to say what he said, to have impact the way he had impact, lives in, in, in you. Now you have to learn how to let that, that, that spirit rule in you. And that's the sanctification process. That's the day-by-day process, isn't it? Hopefully we're getting there. And we'll arrive when we go to heaven. <laughs> Third proof. Jesus' ultimate victory. 
See, Jesus didn't come like Moses to free the people from Rome, like Moses freed the people from Egypt. That's what they wanted. They wanted a Moses-type character to come or a David-type character to come and free them from the oppression of the evil empire of Rome. That's what they wanted. That's not what they were getting. That comes when Jesus comes again. Instead, Jesus came to institute an entirely different kind of exodus from an entirely different, for an entirely different kind of freedom. The freedom he was bringing was a freedom from sin, and it was a freedom from sin that wasn't just for a nation being you know, removed from the oppression of a country. It was for everyone to experience that freedom from sin. How did he do it? The most unusual way that could have been imagined. The cross. You, you might be wearing one around your neck. In every one of our campuses, we have one hanging on the wall to remind us of the power of the cross. The ultimate victory in the cross. Right before the verses that we read today in, uh, in, in Matthew, Isaiah 42 is quoted. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. And these verses are very purposefully placed there by the author Matthew to show us that Jesus was not just a conquering king in the line of Moses, but he was also the suffering servant who was going to free us from our sins. Another beautiful passage from the book of Isaiah sums up what Jesus did as the suffering servant. Listen to these words that you may be familiar with. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. I wonder when it was that the enemy started to realize that the cross was not his victory, but it was Jesus' victory. Jesus' mission included not just the conquering king persona, but he was the suffering servant and praise God that he was. The ultimate victory in that moment looked like weakness, but we know better. Instead of rising up like a king like David, he, was, he rose up on a cross, not a throne. Even those closest to him didn't understand that it was in their place, in our place, that Jesus was going to suffer. It was by his agony that we were healed. Healed of the consequence of sin and healed perfectly when we're in heaven, physically, in every way, as you read the book of Revelation, you'll see so much on that. We're so prone to rebellion, and we have all rebelled. We've all fallen short, haven't we? We know it. Maybe even today you can think about a moment where you fell short of the glory of God. But this is the great news of the cross of Jesus Christ. The ultimate victory on the cross is your victory too. His victory is your victory. So what's our response to all of this? I think it comes in the last verse that we read today, verse 30. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. These are strong words. I have to admit, I wondered if I should put them in this particular sermon, because would it take us in a direction that would, be, that would have been difficult to go to? But I knew that it needed to be read, because it, it calls us to respond. What's being said here is neutrality 
is not a possibility when it comes to Jesus. Sitting on the fence, not going to work. And I believe that declarations are such a powerful way to solidify a decision. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death. How we use our words can either bring life or bring death to ourselves and to others. And you've experienced both. And today I want to try to lead you into a life-giving use of your words. I hope you'll join me in a moment. Several years ago, we had a friend of ours, R.T. Kendall, come to the church. He came several times. And one of the things that was so powerful about his visits is he never came without challenging us strongly to declare that Jesus was Lord of our lives. And so often, he would say, come forward. And I'm telling you, people came forward because they were compelled by the message of Christ. Now, I'm not going to ask you to come forward today, but I remember very distinctly a story that I want to tell you of a time we had RT come out to the Waterbury campus. It was early in our campus endeavor. I was a, you know, a new pastor for that campus, and when I heard RT was coming into town, I said to Pastor Clive at the time, is there any way that he could come to our little campus out in Waterbury and do a special gathering? And he did. And it rained cats and dogs that night, and he was coming from the plane, and he barely made it. We actually, Chris Vitarello had to do some extra worship songs so that he could get to the, to the venue in time. And he got there, and people were there. They were ready. And a gentleman by the name of Bill, whose wife had been praying for him for years, came that night. And he surrendered his life to Jesus and came forward. And this, is a, this was a man who was such a shy guy. I thought, there's no way. But he came forward and received Jesus that night and is walking with the Lord to this day. It was powerful. It was powerful. It was powerful because he declared Jesus in his life. And I want to ask us to do the same thing today. You don't have to leave your seat apart from standing out of it. Unless you feel compelled to, and I'm gonna, when we all stand, I'm going to ask the prayer servants to come right away. So if you need to come, come. We'd love to pray for you. But I'm going to ask you to repeat after me a few things. I simply want us today to declare to the Lord out loud statements related to these three proofs that I've shared with you. Now, you might say them quietly or to yourself if you want to, but I want to challenge you today to vocalize, to verbalize. Because I don't know about you, but for me, I find it very powerful to actually say the things that I believe about the Lord in my life out loud. Sometimes I do it in my first 20. Sometimes I do it in my car. When I'm listening to a worship song, I sing a song that becomes declarative of what I believe and what I believe the Lord has done for me. So I want to challenge us today. Would you stand to your feet now? Prayer servants, would you come forward? Friends, are you ready today to declare the victory and power of Jesus in your lives. Are you ready? Did you know that Jesus' victorious rescue was accomplished for you? Will you let him rescue you? It's time to declare. Repeat after me. Jesus, I need rescuing. Jesus, you have rescued me. Jesus, you have rescued me. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. Did you know that Jesus' power over the enemy has freed you? Will you let him free you and have power over your life?
It's, t- it's time to declare that you will. Jesus, I need you to free me. Jesus, you have freed me. Jesus, you have freed me. Thank you for freeing me. Take a second right now and tell him, tell him, whether out loud or to yourself, what he has freed you from. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, did you know that Jesus' ultimate victory on the cross is your victory too? Will you surrender to Christ, Christ crucified on the cross? Friends, it's, it's time to declare that you will. Repeat after me, Jesus, I need the victory of the cross. Jesus, you have won the ultimate victory. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. I surrender my life. I receive your life in me. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much that when we declare these words, if they're not just words, but they're words coming from our heart, you hear them. You hear them, Lord, and you respond to our heart cry. Oh, God, thank you so much that you have freed us, that you have the ultimate victory that you have power over the enemy and you have power over our sin nature. You have filled us with the Holy Spirit. You are moving in our hearts and lives. Jesus, may this be a declarative moment for us that sets us on the course that you have for us in this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing a song now that continues this theme of declarations of the Lord. So I want to encourage you to sing the words just as you've said these words as a declaration to Jesus. Amen? Amen.